Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond. And welcome back to Blazing the Trail, heard here on Mater Dei Radio and through the Archdiocese of Portland's podcast channel. I am your host, Miriam Marston, and it's a privilege to be with you each week as we continue to hear stories of conversion and renewal and healing. And you know, these these stories don't come on a silver platter. More often than not, there are ups and downs and detours and unexpected plot twists. And my guest on this episode gives us yet another glimpse into what one of those stories can look like. Her name is Dr. Abigail Favalli. And, you know, at one point you'll hear her use the word weird to describe her story of conversion. And I love it. It's so honest because as you'll hear in this moment of going into the deep, which incidentally is the name of one of her books, into the deep, into the church, it all happened pretty abruptly. And really at a time when her worldview and her faith, um, it was all kind of disintegrating. And those kinds of moments can be so devastating, but her witness is a reminder of the mysterious ways that the Holy Spirit can really work wonders in our lives. And as Abigail mentions her time in Scotland, when she was going to grad school, she'll she'll talk about how her apartment looked out over a Catholic church. Um, as she put it, she was a stone's throw away from a tabernacle. She was so close, but didn't cross the threshold of that church the entire time she lived there. But really, that physical proximity counts for something. Something had already been set in motion, and she would eventually be drawn to the Eucharist, to the church. And as I was listening to her, the words of St. Jose Maria Escriva came to mind. He wrote, When you approach the tabernacle, remember that he has been waiting for you for 20 centuries. So to think that in that church in Scotland, our Lord was waiting, waiting for his daughter to come home, and he waits for each and every one of us. So please enjoy my conversation with Abigail, who describes the moment when God saw a gap in her armor. And he shot an arrow. And when the arrow landed, it landed her in the Catholic Church. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Abigail Favalli. Dr. Favalli is the Dean of Humanities at George Fox University. And Abigail, I'm just delighted to have you on the show. Um, You were on the guest list uh, over a year ago, but (laughs) circumstances understandably pushed things back and we had to reschedule. So I'm just glad to have you on. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here, Miriam. Well, Abigail, you have a powerful story to tell, and I just want to dive right in. So if you could please share with us uh, what the road to faith in Christ uh, and joining the church, what that has looked like over the years, and maybe walk us through some of the twists and turns along the way. So please take it from here. So I grew up in an evangelical Christian home. So I was saved, right? That's the terminology, right? I was saved. I asked Jesus into my heart at the age of three. I actually don't remember this, but it was a story that was always told to me growing up. So, and I actually know the date, right? March 17th, which is funny now. I'm like, oh, St. Patty's Day. Um, But when I was very little, we would celebrate it as like our rebirth day. Um, So I grew up and there's no time in my life where um, Jesus wasn't kind of part of the milieu of my life. And uh, I, I grew up in the Western United States, kind of in the Mormon belt. So Eastern Idaho, mm-hmm. Southern Utah. And 
um, it, it was an interesting cultural experience because I was in an evangelical bubble inside like a very Mormon bubble. Mm -hmm. And so I think I grew up with a more of a defensive posture toward my faith, you know, like it was something to be guarded against and defended in this context of, of Mormonism. And then I went to college at the university where I now teach actually, George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. It's an evangelical friends school. And um, I came here um, as a, as a 17 year old and a lot of growth happened in college. So yeah. um, growth in, in many varieties of the word, like in some ways I grew in my faith. In some ways I grew in my distance from the faith. So, um, but two major things happened, I will say that are relevant. One is I had a philosophy professor who was also an Anglican priest. Mm -hmm. And I began to go to um, Sunday Eucharist gatherings at his house. And that was my first encounter with liturgical worship with the Eucharist, with the sacraments, like any of that kind of stuff, the saints. And so that really opened up my mind and my heart to that kind of form of worship. And I really loved it. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was also exploring feminism for the first time. So yeah. I became very interested in what my worth and dignity as a woman looked like, especially within the context of Christianity and those, those sorts of, those kind of twin journeys for a while, they were following the same path as I became more Anglican and also more invested in feminism. Mm -hmm. But then by the time I, I was graduating um, as a senior, my feminism had really become something that was a wall between myself and Christianity. Um, I think I had adopted what what's often called in, in feminist circles, a hermeneutics of suspicion. So a way of reading the world, the way of reading reality, and certainly Christianity, Christian tradition and scripture with suspicion, right? So you're kind of on guard, you're assuming that there's some kind of bias against women and you're on the, you're on the hunt for it, right? Yeah. But I think in that, in that posture of suspicion, that really began to, to erode my relationship with God. And then I went into graduate school, which was really just <laughs> like a 40 years in the desert kind of experience. Um, I was in graduate school in the humanities and English and in women's studies, feminist theory. So as you can imagine, I mean, this was also in the UK. So to call it a secular environment is almost putting it too gently. Um, it was just, it was an environment where the question of God and faith was so shut down and closed off that, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we've moved past that. Like it, it wasn't wow. even on the scene. And the problem was, I think I wasn't quite aware of how much I was adopting this entirely different worldview until it had already happened, right? It happened very subtly. Mm. Um, and even though in the time I, I still considered myself a Christian sort of, I mean, depending on the day, um, I wasn't I wasn't worshiping. I wasn't praying. There was no, 
there was no devotional or experiential aspect to that faith. It was all kind of an intellectual exercise. And it was mostly a deconstructive exercise. Like mm-hmm. I was working from a feminist perspective and kind of trying to deconstruct the Christian faith in a way that I thought would salvage it, um, but was really just kind of gutting it from within. So um, here's a little a little kind of concrete anecdote, which is, so I was living in St. Andrews, Scotland, um, and our first flat, my husband and I, so I got married in this time as well. Um, the first flat my husband and I lived in looked out over the Catholic church in town, which was this small, but beautiful and super old um, stone church. I think it was called St. James Catholic Church. I don't know. And, you know, my bedroom window looked right into it. And the whole time we lived there, I never once crossed the street to go inside. And um, I think about that now. And I look at, I look back at the times when um, I was pretty far away from God in my heart, but nonetheless, like there's this interesting kind of physical proximity to the Eucharist. Like even where I was born in this tiny town in Idaho, McCall, Idaho, um, I was born in this hospital that is like kitty corner for at an intersection from the Catholic church. So I think about that now, like I came into the world, like very, you know, a stone's throw away from a tabernacle and in St. Andrews, when I was, you know, walking away from the faith, I still was in the, the kind of vicinity of the tabernacle, but I, uh, it, I regret now that I think, oh, I was so close, but in my heart, I was so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so then I finished my PhD and I came back um, to the United States to teach. And I was still in this mentality of wanting to be this kind of feminist prophet that would salvage Christianity from itself. Um, and I had really kind of placed myself in the role of divine authority. Like I, you know, I was the one who was equipped to open the Bible and decide which parts we should keep and which parts we should discard. I wasn't really beholden to any kind of authority outside of myself. Um, And I had really kind of closed myself off to an idea of God um, who is active in the world, whose grace is working in the world. I thought of God as this um, divine reality, like somewhere out there far away, but all, you know, kind of, silent and not speaking to us. And all we had were these kind of human stories and images to try to get catch glimpses of God here and there. This was not a God that speaks to us. This was not a God that breaks into our world. Um, And during that time when I was, I was teaching at a Christian school, but really kind of in this slowly evolving faith crisis slash disintegration. um, And Catholicism wasn't really on my radar, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I still, there was still a part of me that, you know, looked longingly toward the kind of Anglo-Catholic world and the beauty there and the memory of how that sacramental kind of worship had been so meaningful to me in the past. Mm -hmm. But my heart was just really hardened against things like um, an all-male priesthood specifically and other things that just really cut against my feminist beliefs. So I held myself off from it. Um, Now here's a twist and turn moment. The big, I think, turning point in my heart and in my life was becoming a mother. So I became a mother at the age of 29. And 
the the experience both of pregnancy and birth and then the aftermath of birth um, really upended a lot of my feminist assumptions about how the world works. Hmm. Um, in one way in which this was true, the, the feminist kind of emphasis on autonomy and independence mm-hmm. um, really began to lose its explanatory power because all of a sudden my life was just so entangled in the life of another person. And in this very like real and concrete way, like, oh, I have to grow this being inside my body. And now the, it's out. I have to feed it with my body, right? Um, and it was a son. So like all of a sudden my life is so entangled with um, the lives of male human beings, my husband, my son. And I was like, ah, and, um, and then also I think another thing that, that began to challenge my feminism um, was just this, a shift in focus, right? Where it was mm-hmm. no longer just about the plight of women and girls, but I began to be interested um, in what, um, what boys go through and what men go through. And also (laughs) raising a child really blew up any kind of, um, academic theories I had about how socially constructed identity and gender are because, oh my gosh, these little, these little human beings, they come with these really strong personalities from day one. Like they're who they are, right? Mm -hmm. As a parent, like you can kind of derail that if you do a terrible job, but you can't just like, they're not blank slates that you can just, you know, kind of shape into the person or gender or whatever that you want. Like they, they come as they're unique with this unique personhood that's very clear and evident from, from the beginning. So a lot of my assumptions about the world were just really rattled when I became a mother. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened in that time in my life is I think my defenses were down Mm -hmm. and it really was my feminist defenses, I think that had been guarding my heart away from um, Christianity. And in that kind of vulnerable place, I really abruptly became Catholic. And this is, this is a weird, this is a weird story. You know, this isn't a story where I, you know, started going to mass or I made friends with a Catholic or, you know, it was really, like my faith was disintegrating, my feminism was shaken. And in that moment of vulnerability, that time of vulnerability, I um, I think this pent up desire and longing that I'd had for Catholicism, for the source of the, the sacramental Eucharistic liturgical mm-hmm. Christian worship um, just kind of flooded out. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, I kind of just, there's really no way to explain it except for God's grace. Like God, God saw a gap in my armor and he shot an arrow, that arrow landed and it landed me in the Catholic church. So I started RCIA um, really pretty suddenly. And with a lot of my, um, my doubts and hangups still unresolved, Mm -hmm. I think I was in a, a desperate enough place and a hungry enough place that I was able to kind of suspend my objections um, enough to just go with it, right? Like this flood tide of desire, which I was just, I was riding that wave and I wrote it right into the Catholic church. And then after I became Catholic, I was like, okay, what did I actually sign up for here? You know, how do I really navigate this whole male priesthood thing? And, 
And so it was really after I became Catholic and began to live the sacramental life um, that I had, I would say, more of a profound inner conversion where my heart and my mind really began to be upended and changed to the point where I began to really think like a Catholic and fully enter the the whole of that worldview. And then eventually all of my, my objections um, were resolved. So that's, that's the sketch. Uh, So I'm happy to, to dive into any part of that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Dr. Abigail Favalli, who is the Dean of Humanities at George Fox University. I, I like how you, you're describing what happened after you became a Catholic, that there really was a starting point for further conversion. And um, I, I've said this a number of times on the show, but also in kind of my work in parish ministry as well, as we're preparing people to become members of the church moving towards baptism, I always say we're not moving towards a finish line, but rather to a starting line. Uh, and it sounds like you, that, that really happened. Like you weren't, you weren't coming to the end of a marathon and you were just getting to another starting point uh, for yep. more conversion. And it just keeps going on from here. You know, Abigail, I'm wondering <clears throat> how now this has come to inform your approach to feminism, to mm-hmm. important issues of dignity and uh, the worth of just women who are, are are asking those questions about worth and value and dignity. How has this changed uh, kind of how you're informed about those really important issues? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's completely changed, right? Mm-hmm. So after I became Catholic and in that first kind of dizzying year of real conversion, I felt really defeated. You know, I thought I've, I've invested my, professional life in this discipline of feminist studies. And I'm realizing how much the, the implicit worldview in a lot of feminist theory, and I would say in the academy in general was really at odds from the worldview that I now inhabited. And so I just, I was like, Oh, I wasted my life, you know, Oh, I should have gotten a PhD and sacramental theology, you know, I was kind of in that place, like, um, and I, I also felt, you know, rightly kind of chastened, I think, because I now so deeply disagreed with a lot of the things that I'd written and published and said publicly, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking like, oh, wow, I'm, I, I was really wrong. I was really misled. Um, and, you know, I was a professor at the time. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I had misled others as well. And, so I think there was a moment of like, oh, well, what do I do now? Um, but I think pretty quickly it became clear that that was all part of the plan, right? That was for me to go through that, for me to really immerse myself in the world of gender theory and feminist theory, and then to be able to begin to look at that world from a Catholic perspective and discern, okay, well, what's good here? What's not good here? And begin to try to articulate some of that um, to others, especially in the midst of a lot of confusion in our world about those yeah. things right now. So I do, I've, I've now realized like, okay, this is actually, you know, God's using um, my, yeah. my background in this area. And there's so much really fun work to be done from a Catholic perspective now. So um, I'm actually, I'm, I really 
I really love what I'm writing on now and speaking on now. I'm often writing about gender issues and Mm -hmm. trying to really come at those things from a deeply Catholic perspective, because I think uh, more extreme views on either side, um, either extreme progressivism or extreme traditionalism Mm -hmm. really miss the fullness of the truth. And so um, what I try to do now in my work is to hit that sweet spot where I kind of make I make sure to say stuff that'll make progressives feel uncomfortable. And I also make sure that I have something to make traditionalists feel uncomfortable <laughs> um, to kind of bring us, bring us away from the extremes that our, our culture pushes us into in order to see the fullness of what, um, what Christianity has to offer on these questions of sex and gender and women's dignity. Yeah. Is there a place where our listeners could see some of what you've written or what you're, yeah, what you're writing about now? Do you have that? Sure, yeah. yeah. So I have written quite a few essays for Church Life Journal, which is put out by Notre Dame. It's online, the University of Notre Dame. Um, so if you just, if you just Google like my name and Church Life Journal, you'll probably hit my author page and it just has all the essays I've written there. Um, I've done a number of podcasts, I guess. One of my students told me that you can just like search my name on these podcast apps and then all the interviews I've done will pop up. So that's cool. Okay. Um, I haven't tried it myself, but so, uh, and then also I, I have just finished a book last March on gender. It's called the Genesis of gender, and it will be coming out with Ignatius press, I think in January, but in the early, in the early spring, in the early year. Awesome. And so there are, that's something to look forward to. And also I wrote a book on my conversion mm-hmm. that gives kind of the full and messy story of what I just traced and goes more deeply into to especially some of these questions because when I was going through that period of inner conversion, the things that I had to wrestle with were things about sexuality and gender. And so I have you know, chapters on those things in that book. And that that book is called Into the Deep, an unlikely Catholic conversion. And that came out in 2018. So it's, you know, you can get it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or the publisher Cascade Books. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And Abigail, we're coming to the end of our time together and I'm I'm grateful for your time. Um, I am so thankful for just to, to hear what God's done in your life, in your family, in your work. It's awesome to hear. I just ask that con- God continue to bless you, your family, and your work at George Fox University as well. Thank you, Abigail. Yeah, thank you so much. God bless you. In our conversation, Abigail noted that the experience of pregnancy and motherhood really upended a number of her previously held assumptions. And among those was this idea that babies are born kind of like a blank slate without any personality or identity already ascribed to them. And that these malleable realities were things that could be fashioned or constructed over time. And what she discovered was that, well, actually babies already come with a pretty distinct personality and identity. And I smiled thinking of my own nieces and nephews who are each so different and from day one had distinct and vibrant personalities. I think of my one niece who from the very start, it's clear she has had a heart for nature, for creation, for animals. She's the one who will ask for a spider for Christmas. She'll do whatever she can to rescue a butterfly. I remember once last year I walked out on the deck and she was putting a piece of scotch tape onto the leaf of a plant. I asked what she was doing and she responded, well, there was a hole in the leaf and I wanted to fix it with this tape. This is just who she is. And yes, some of it has been taught and she's observing and learning from others, but so much is just innate and intuitive. 
Another realization Abigail had as she was experiencing motherhood for the first time was the reality that her life was entangled with the life of another person. There was just no getting around this one. Her understanding of personal autonomy really shifted at this point as she dove into the adventure of bringing another little human being into the world. And you know, what what could be a spiritual way of understanding this entanglement with the life of another person? Well, it's communion, where you hardly know where your own life stops and another person's life begins. That's what we're called to, actually. If it's not that, then it makes no sense when we talk about being a member of the body of Christ. I mean, that tells us pretty, pretty bluntly, actually, that our own understanding of self is only as strong and good as how we understand how we connect and relate with another person. So in 1995, Pope St. John Paul II wrote a letter to women, and in his conclusion, he writes this. Necessary emphasis should be placed on the genius of women, not only by considering great and famous women of the past or present, but also those ordinary women who reveal the gift of their womanhood by placing themselves at the service of others in their everyday lives. For in giving themselves to others each day, women fulfill their deepest vocation. Perhaps more than men, women acknowledge the person because they see persons with their hearts. They see them independently of various ideological or political systems. They see others in their greatness and limitations. They try to go out to them and help them. In this way, the basic plan of the Creator takes flesh in the history of humanity. Again, that is Pope St. John Paul II. And there is a line in there that I think in in our current climate of division and mistrust and suspicion, it really stands out. And that is, they see them independently of various ideological or political systems. Gosh, that is so key. That is a worldview that really each of us should strive for. Are we able to see people, as JP2 says, with the heart? Can we begin our interactions with others on that level ground, so to speak, just person to person? After all, we're not ideas conversing with each other. We're people. And so this week, that's, that's where I want to leave us with this powerful reminder to see other people with the heart, never forgetting that we are speaking to another daughter or son of God. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please join me next week as we continue to blaze a trail in Western Oregon and beyond. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon by visiting archdpdx.org.